You're listening to Rambling with Ryu, hosted by Bean, the co-founder of Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center living with a T10 spinal cord injury, and Nancy, a professional kinesiologist specializing in pediatric and adult neurorehabilitation. Welcome to our activity-based therapy series, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and those with lived experience as we explore the realm of neurorecovery. On this podcast, we educate on the lesser-known topics and give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice. Today, we're going to talk to Chuck, who is one of our friends and one of our clients at Ryu. He is a paramedic who sustained a spinal cord injury, and we're invited him to join our podcast today so he can speak to his experience from a first responder to being a patient and now on his journey of neuro recovery. So welcome, Chuck. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to have you. you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a long journey. Well, a little bit about myself. If you guys know me from Ryu, I'm, uh, I'm 41 years old. I'm you know, a little bit, little bit overweight, trying to fix that. But primarily, I'm a, I'm a husband to my wife Alex and a dad to my daughter Quinn, who's 11, and the plethora of pets that we have at our house. Before my injury, I spent well, as of this year, it's 21 years as a primary care paramedic in uh, service to the province of Alberta. And during my accident and up to my accident, I was. 10 years with the City of Edmonton slash Alberta Health Services, Edmonton Metro EMS division. So a long time. I've worked all over the province. I've worked in, I think, just about every type of service imaginable from a Band-Aid guy on, a, on an oil rig to uh, flight support, as well as, uh, you know, regular everyday ground delivery service for the ambulance. But everywhere from Red Earth Creek all the way down to uh, Southern Alberta as well. So I've been around. That's awesome. I bet you got some good stories. Uh, yes, and not all good, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I guess that's, that's part of being a first responder, right? You always see people on their worst day, and you try and hopefully help fix that outcome for them. But one of the things that I always taught my students when I was a preceptor and an instructor at Nate was, you know, it's it's not your emergency, so you have to kind of be the the duck on the pond for them, even though you're scurrying really hard in your brain that you have to have that presence of calm and let you know what you're doing, regardless of what the situation is. So uh, it's one of those things. It's <laughs> good advice. Yeah, it's a skill for sure. Can we talk about your worst day? My worst day so when you talk about you see people on their worst day so what was your day like during your accident do you feel comfortable talking about your incident i feel completely comfortable talking about my accident simply because i don't remember it my wife unfortunately was present when it happened and because i was considered deceased on scene she actually did cpr on me i was uh, considered a trauma code which is uh and i was in full cardiac arrest on scene luckily i got brought back i don't remember any of it. Thankfully, my brain kind of left it all out. But everything I know, I know from either talking to my friends, talking to my family and talking to Alex afterwards. So it's really comfortable to talk about it simply because I don't remember living it. Basically, it was a, you know, sunny July afternoon, I was doing some work out at Alex's uh, parents's 
farm, which is going to be our farm soon. We were cutting down some trees that I've never done before. Another job that I was learning how to do, being a, a city kid learning how to do farm chores, was we were going to cut down some trees that were called, very ironically, widow makers. They're these giant, tall poplar trees that really sway even in the lightest breeze. We were concerned that they were going to come down onto our livestock areas, so we had to cut them down. I was doing it with uh, Alex's dad. He's a bit of a pro, but still very self-taught because, you know, that's how farm people are usually. Something that, you know, might not always be completely in our wheelhouse was something that, you know, you kind of think should be. So apparently I happened to be just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was a matter of circumstance. Uh, we had taken every precaution necessary. We'd shimmed trees. We'd, you know, put up ropes and pulley systems to make sure that this thing was going to fall in a certain way. And what happened was as my um, father-in-law was making the final cut into the tree just above the relief cut, the tree was so old and so rotten, it actually broke about five feet above all of the actual cuts. Mm -hmm. So I had 60 feet of tree fall in the opposite direction that it was supposed to fall, and it fell on me. Luckily, I was wearing a helmet. So I survived that much, but immediately I was very close to unconsciousness and had very visible signs of a head injury and potentially a spinal cord injury. And Alex had the frame of mind to yell at her dad to call 911 and then just basically let her training take over as a, as a paramedic and started doing exactly what I would have done had it happened to her kind of thing. So I was put in a spinal immobilization kind of manually on scene and they recognized that I was starting to aspirate on vomit and stuff like that because I was starting to vomit from my head injury. So her dad and herself rolled me over so that I wouldn't die. And then they were online with 911 who had dispatched the closest ambulance to our house in Ardrossan was available in the city of Edmonton because everyone was out on calls because they were very busy that day. So an Edmonton ambulance was dispatched from 118th Avenue and 50th Street to our house on Range Road 211 and Highway 16. So good 20-minute drive, maybe. Luckily, a Strathcona County ambulance freed up from the hospital uh, in Strathcona at almost the same time. So they were dispatched to this call as well. The call also went out at the time that when they ask you, you know, where are you? What do you need? You know, what's going on? My father-in-law and Alex said, you know, this is an off-duty paramedic. This is one of our own. He is down and he is going to die. So I don't know if you guys are so familiar with it, but everything in the province of Alberta is computer dispatched. So there's a computer that sits in the front of the, the ambulance and they get all the real-time updates as people are talking to the dispatchers, as the dispatchers put it into the information to the computer. So it came across right away that it was a, a member that was down and that it was a fellow paramedic. And I don't know if that increased the nitro boost in the ambulances, but when they arrived, they immediately launched STARS ambulance. Luckily, the STARS aircraft was already in the air and it was on its way to Jasper to do a transfer. But the doctor, Dr. Lobe, who was one of our medical directors, had heard that there was uh, an incident, which was my incident, out in Ardrossan where uh, it could have been a paramedic involved, but that the patient had endured some serious trauma to his head and 
which was me and that I had stopped breathing at one point and CPR was in progress. So he diverted the helicopter to my scene. So I was flown by helicopter from the middle of our, our horse pasture to the U of A hospital where I, I was stabilized in the emergency department after having two incidences of cardiac arrest and then up to surgery. But the biggest blow of it all, still to this day, the first three people on scene were people that I knew very, very well. Uh, the first three ambulance providers were Nathan Taylor, who is still to this day just like a brother to me. And there was also uh, Rachel and Gunner were his partners that day. Rachel was actually on her return to work process and was on her way back after a successful fight with post-traumatic stress. And she was... The only paramedic who was successfully able to intubate me in the field. And then the two people who got off the helicopter, one of them is actually, was one of my trainers when I started with the city of Edmonton. Her name is Angela Maslini, and she's the head of operations at Stars Ambulance in Edmonton. And I've known her for two decades. And she said that uh, I was unrecognizable when she got off the helicopter because things had happened so fast and so quickly, the swelling and everything to my face and head. She didn't believe it was me. She saw Alex and was like, why are you here? And then they found out that it was me. And Angela's always been a very, very close friend and she couldn't believe it. But, you know, their training took over and all these people who know me very well got together and were able to get me to the hospital in one piece. And then um, the three doctors that initially received me in the emergency department were all friends. Uh, Dr. Bill Sevcik was one of the doctors, and Dr. Sunil Sukram was one of the other doctors, and they were both ex-medical directors of Edmonton EMS, and they both known me for almost two decades as the funny, laughy paramedic that always brings the worst stuff to us, and I became the worst stuff. And then, uh, of course, the surgeon that worked on me, Dr. Broad, he knew me from many passings in the emergency department when I would be bringing him, you know, hot stroke patients or big traumas like I was. So it was a real trip to find out afterwards who had all done what with me and what it really took to get me to get to that hospital. I wouldn't wish that bad day on anybody. It's always hard when it's somebody you know. On any day, you don't want to screw up. But if it's somebody you know, you never want to screw up. Oh, man, I just had a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes hearing you. Well, I'm lucky that my brain erased it because I don't remember any of it. The, the downside is those people remember it all. And when we talk about it, it's one of those things that I listen to them very intently. And I don't ask a lot of questions because I don't want them to have to relive it because it's probably really hard for them. And I know with Alex, especially, it's hard. It, it's really hard, regardless of what the outcome was. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about your in the hospital. What was your initial prognosis? You landed, you're in the ER. What was their thoughts, kind of process of where you were headed? Well, the initial neurosurgeon told Alex that I was never going to wake up, that I was probably headed for either dead or a vegetative state. They had told her that based on the amount of swelling in my brain from the brain bleed, that uh, I had an inch and a half of leftward shift, that I was dead, that there was no coming back from it. And if I did wake up, I wouldn't know anyone. I wouldn't be able to remember. I probably would be nonverbal. And if I was able to have some cohesion of thought, it would not be at the level of a 40-year-old with an IQ of 
over a hundred, you know, it would be of someone very childlike and probably with like the memory of a goldfish. So my prognosis was garbage. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty grim for sure. It was, and the way that it was delivered to Alex, I think was the hardest because she knows and I know this, that cardiac arrest due to trauma is like a 0% call. Like your, your chances of getting that back are like nothing. And then if you do get them back or get the person to make it to the hospital, there's chances are even slimmer. But the way that the, the doctor kind of delivered it to her was kind of nonchalant, I guess. And not the best way to say, you know, that I was probably not going to come out of it. So she, because I never heard these things until afterwards, uh, I didn't know what my prognosis was going to be. So it left a lot to be desired within my family to know what was going on with me. Well, I mean, you proved that doctor wrong. (laughs) I've been proving doctors wrong since I woke up, apparently. I was in a coma for about two days, three days after my initial surgery. And then they brought me up. Like they were just trying to see where I was cognitively. They were trying to see like what my potential was. I don't remember being woken up the first time because they gave me some very fantastic medication to give me uh, medically facilitated amnesia. So for the two days that I was awake, apparently I was struggling because I had collapsed lungs. I was still in a halo because the injuries that I was originally diagnosed with was I had a brain bleed with leftward shift. I had a C2 hangman's fracture. I had some spinal injuries at T6, T7, and then a full weird thing happened between T8 and T12. And then, of course, all the other associated trauma I had. Fractured ribs, collapsed lungs, facial trauma, broken teeth, stuff like that. So they brought me up just to kind of see where I was at, and my lungs ended up collapsing a second time, so they had to put me back down into a coma to facilitate the lack of oxygenation in my body. Do you remember anything from your coma? I have a recurring dream from my coma. I don't remember much, but I do remember the dreams. When I first came out, I kind of pulled Alex aside and told her about this dream that I'd had. It was surreal. But it was the first time I think I regained some type of memory from what was going on was I was sitting in the stands at Telus Field. And uh, I was sitting about two rows behind myself. And uh, myself was sitting with Alex's mom and dad at the time. And it hit me it struck me as like a a deja vu that i've been in this place before and what it was is it was a baseball game that alex had been playing in it was a tournament that she'd been playing in almost two years before where uh, i knew exactly what was going to happen next and it would happen kind of thing we were sitting in the stands and quinn was off playing with a bunch of the other kids and i looked over to my left and there was this elderly gentleman sitting there and he had this big stupid grin on his face he's like so how you liking the game i said you know it's it's weird i think i've been here before he's like what's gonna happen next i said alex is gonna hit a home run and she's gonna fall down she's gonna almost break her wrist and then i'm gonna go down there and i'm gonna check on her and take her to the hospital and she's gonna get x-rays and she's gonna prove me wrong that she didn't break her wrist and i'm gonna be the 
the less capable paramedic in the house. And we were having this long conversation about life and, you know, if I could do things over again, would I do things over again and everything else? And it was just like this weird, almost cyclical conversation. And finally, Alex got up to bat. She hit her home run and I went to stand up to go and see if she was okay. And then the doppelganger of myself in front of me did the same thing. And he said, you know, I think she's going to be okay. I said, yeah, I think she's in good hands. I think that's me. He's like, yeah, it is you. He said, this isn't a dream. It's a memory. I said, oh, okay. He says, but uh, I'll offer you a thing. You can either go down there and, you know, make sure she's okay. Or you and I can go for a drive in my, in my car. I said, oh, well, what's the difference? He said, well, you can either go down and check and make sure she's okay. But just remember, if you choose that path, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have some, some pretty hard go. But if you get in the car with me, it's going to be easy. And there'll be no pain. And everything's just going to be exactly the same as it was. And I thought, you know what? Nice car, but I'm going to go hang out with my family. He's like, well, just remember, it's all your choice. And then that was the end of that dream. But I remember it so clearly. And I remember it more clearly than I remember just about anything at that point. I had splits and bits of dreams that, you know, I was in a hospital under the ocean for some reason. And then I was told later on that it was my ventilator. And then I remember smelling burnt plastic and thinking that I'd been involved in a, some kind of explosion. And I was told that it was when I went in for surgery that they were using a cauterizing tool, that kind of stuff. So that being the most vivid memory of everything, it's something that I still to this day can't shake. Yeah, that's, that's deep, man. It's definitely weird. Yeah, and it's cool to hear, too, because you hear about people, you know, being in a coma, but, like, what do they actually remember? What do they hear? And it's cool to hear your side. Yeah, it's weird that I was able to remember it. So how long were you in the ICU for? I was in ICU for about two and a half weeks. I was admitted to ICU after surgery on the 26th of July because my accident occurred that afternoon, and I was sent to subacute on the 19th of August. So just about three weeks. And then at what point did you like fully regain consciousness? I fully regained consciousness about six days before I got transferred to subacute. I had regained consciousness, but there was still some, some issues with the values of oxygenation that my lungs were providing. I'd end up having to get like a bronch wash done and stuff like that, where they actually stuck soap and water into my lungs and pulled out, you know, 25 years of smoking and half my pasture <laughs> of like dirt and debris out of my lungs. And then they, they were really concerned about my C2 because they were concerned whether it was stable or whether it was unstable, whether they were going to go in for another surgery to look at my neck because the x-rays, the MRI and the CT scan had shown that it had fused spontaneously on its own, but they couldn't be a hundred percent sure. You know, they had gone in and fixed my back from, you know, T8 to T12, I have a whole bunch of hardware in there, but they never had to go back into my neck, which is weird. But it was the thing that kept me in ICU afterwards the longest was just, just doctors debating whether or not they needed to go in and fix something that didn't need to be fixed or what was going on in there. So until I got my halo off, I was stuck in ICU. So you're only in the halo for about three weeks then? I was in a halo for about three weeks and then I was transferred to a hard Philly collar and with very finger shakingly 
stern instructions not to fool around with my sea collar, knowing that I was medically trained and things like that, and understanding the basics of a, of a spinal cord injury, they knew that I would listen for the most part, but I'm a very stubborn <laughs> individual and always think that I know better. So I think that's common with people who have some training, but not all the training where it's like, but I can put it back on or I can do this. And, but it was probably just, just after September 1st that I was given the all clear that I could take my C collar off and that I didn't need it because my C2 was stable and the fracture that they thought was going to kill me was gone. Wow. That's awesome. So can you describe what the halo felt like and what it kind of looked like for people who don't know? So the halo is like this metal cage that your head lives in where they have a bracket that is literally, and I still have the scars to this day, where it is literally screwed into your head. And then there's bars that fit onto like a chest piece to just basically to give your neck a little bit of traction. But that reminds you and keeps you from turning your head to the left or to the right. You can only look in one direction. It's probably one of the weirdest feelings I ever had. having this big monstrosity on my head. But I only briefly really remember it because the amount of time they had me up and then would just because it was just easier to handle me and handle the situation with my breathing to keep me sedated. They kept me as incoherent as humanly possible. I think there's only one picture that exists of me in that halo, but you can't really see the halo very much because there's so many people around me trying to make sure that I'm okay. Fair enough. So what you remember, was it painful at all? What I remember, like when I regained any type of consciousness was everything hurt. I hurt from head to toe. I was confused as to what was going on. I didn't know where I was. I know at one time I was restrained just because I was suffering from delirium as well, just because of the amount of medication I was on. And when you, the last thing you remember is going to bed the night before, because that's what your brain took away from you. When you wake up and you're in a hospital and you're surrounded by a thousand people you don't know, and everything hurts, I guess you tend to lash out at some folks, regardless if you're aware of it or not. So I spent a lot of time sleeping. So that's what your body needed as well, right? To heal. Oh, of course. All right, so now you've been moved to subacute. What was that transition like for you? You know, it was scary because, you know, the, the three days that I was really coherent and awake, I was still in a C-collar, but they had started to get me to transition into a wheelchair in the U of A, in ICU, because they wanted to see if I could handle sitting up, uh, basically. So I would transition into this giant quad wheelchair where they would push me around and let me go out to the healing gardens so I could actually see outside for the first time because all I wanted to do was go outside and they told me that I wasn't allowed to. So the transition to subacute was kind of scary because I didn't really know what was going to happen. I was used to this one-to-one nursing care where if I needed anything or anything was kind of off sideways, there was somebody right there, somebody to be able to help me out or talk me down or explain to me what was going to happen. It was really easy. When I moved to subacute, I, you know, I went from being in a room with four other people, but having a single nurse to look after me to going into a room with, you know, another person. But now that nurse is responsible for four or five or maybe even six other people on the ward. And we're all coming down from an ICU 
so or out of surgery so we're all fairly high demand so you know we'd have a team of nurses come in and check on you and then you know leave you to your own device for about an hour or an hour and a half and then come back and check on you so you're doing a lot of self exploration at the time and not really knowing what to expect or or what to see but it was i was apprehensive about it because i didn't know what the next steps were going to be or how long they were going to be because nobody really had a solid outcome for me yet. Okay, yeah, that was going to be my next question is when did you find out you were paralyzed or that you had a spinal cord injury and what was your reaction to that news? I found out I was paralyzed in ICU by accident. What happened was is when the doctors brought me up, they were supposed to wait for Alex to come from home. She was on her way to visit me and then they were going to kind of drop the news to me. But what had happened is when I woke up, I was in a lot of pain and they're like, okay, we'll just give you a shot. And the nurse says, we're going to put it somewhere where you can't feel it. And I went, what do you mean I can't feel it? And then that was when I found out that I was paralyzed. But at first they weren't sure if it was going to be temporary or permanent. And then I found out that I had a spinal cord injury. And of course, knowing what I know, I was like, okay, is my uh, what's intact, what's not intact, are my cranial nerves okay? Is my S4, S5 still alive? Do I have tone in my rectum? And all of a sudden they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you asking all these questions? How do you know how to ask these questions? I'm like, <laughs> because I used to do this job. A lot of the nurses knew who I was because from the minute I was admitted at the U of A, there was a lineup of uniformed professionals coming to visit to bring things. I was so in dire need of blood product because of my surgeries and the amount of bleeding I did in my brain that my co-workers built a blood drive for us. And my friend Jen organized the blood drive. She ended up getting a national award for the blood drive. Oh. And she continues to do blood drives through her teaching at Nate as their special project every year because of what they were doing beforehand. But the fact that they were able to bring in 400 units of blood, I only needed like eight. And they ended up saving the lives of a bunch of children that were waiting for blood donations that the types were too rare to get. And they had that happen where a couple of kids got much needed blood donations that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So they stepped up. Like my whole blue family, as I call them, stepped up and they made it very aware that, that I was being supported by them through the whole process. Even if I didn't know about it, <laughs> they were there. Oh my God, man, you're making me cry. <laughs> wow. This is like, it's incredible. And I've known you for so long and I didn't know any of these details. Well, they're, they're kind of private details that, you know, realizing that, you know, the more you talk about it, the it's, it's like therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not private anymore. I hope you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So then what was your response to like the spinal cord injury? What was your first thought? Like, what was your headspace like? The first thing that I said when I was told I was paralyzed by Dr. Broad was, that's cool. When do I learn how to walk again? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and deadpan in the face, he said, quote unquote, you're stupid if you think you're going to walk again. That's what he said? And that's what he said. And I was like, 
wait a minute. Like, I, I get it that we talk like this in emergency and we talk like this because we, we know each other and, and everything else. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm, I'm stupid if I think that's going to happen. He's like, I will take you golfing in Hawaii on my own dime if you can walk in to my office anytime in the future. And I was like, I'll take that bet. And he's like, good. Now you have something to, that that'll motivate you. But he's like, I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm going to, and he sat me down and, and he, then he took it down a notch because he realized that I wasn't kidding. And he had to tell me as seriously as it was that in his opinion, from all of the surgeries that he'd ever done before in the past and everything that he'd visualized while he was in there doing my surgery was that my prognosis was 0%. And he apologized for what he said. He's like, I'm sorry I called you stupid. But the thing is, is that I have to be real with you. I have to tell you the honest truth that if you think you're going to walk again, you are going to be disappointed. So, of course, that really takes you off the rails. <laughs> so I, I just remember looking over at Alex and saying, I don't care what they say, I'm walking. And Dr. Broad just, you know, did, did what Dr. Broad usually does, which is every time he came to visit me afterwards was, you still think you're going to walk? Yep. Okay. He's like, okay, you're, you're going to be that stubborn patient. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> right. So I think the worst part for me is, is knowing certain looks that doctors give to each other or that they give to their compatriot nurses or to another medically trained individual like the side eye, that quiet conversation that you don't need to have, that you're just looking at them saying like, come on, man. I saw it. I was like, and I'm like, no, I'm proving you wrong. I don't care what you say. I'm proving you wrong. So my thought process was, is I have to figure out how to undo what I did. So it was just a matter of just trying to figure everything out. Yeah, straight up. So now you're in the subacute unit. How long were you there? And then what was the pro transfer process like to the Glenrose? Oh, I was in subacute until the 16th of September. I was there for about a month. There was a lot of discussion. And the nice thing was, is that I was involved in a lot of the discussions. The nursing staff at subacute apparently, quote unquote, loved me to death because I was easy. I was always trying to do things myself. But I was never trying to, you know, get out of bed on my own or do anything ridiculously crazy. I had started some minor physiotherapy because I'd lost so much body mass being in that medically facilitated coma and stuff like that. I joked that I looked like grade seven me. <laughs> I was so tiny and uh, I was so frail and stuff. But they would always come and talk to me about, okay, well, our plan is, is that we're going to get you into the Glenrose. And our plan is, is that while you're waiting here, we're going to get you into a physiotherapy program because there's physiotherapy on the ward. Chances are is that you might get sent to a, another ward. We don't want that to happen because you know, you're still requiring someone to look after your neurological issues and sending you to a, you know, a ward where they're doing knee and, and hip and back surgeries and not involving neurological issues, you know, you're not going to get looked after as much uh, for that. There was also talk that there was going to be potentially a transfer to an interim step-down unit off-site. So there was talk about going to one of the rehab hospitals 
in the meantime, while there was while I was waiting a space at the Glen Rose, if they needed that spot in subacute. But I know that my nursing team went to bat for me twice to keep me in subacute at the U of A instead of having me sent to one of the offsite units because they were afraid that I wasn't going to get the care I needed. Yeah. So I ended up staying in subacute until getting transferred to the Glen Rose. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I got to sort of cheat the system a little bit with the transfer. In the grand scheme of things, being a paramedic, and I had oh everybody from the chief paramedic of Alberta to you know students that I had just taught weeks before come and visit me in the hospital. So everybody was kind of had their finger on what was going to happen. I talked to the dispatchers. I talked to everybody. And when, when you make a transfer for a patient, it actually goes to the same dispatch center that all the emergency calls go through. Mm-hmm. So the the request for my transfer to go from the Glen Rose, I knew what day it was happening. So I had called my old supervisor, who's also one of my really close friends. And I said, hey, I know for a fact I'm getting out on this day. If they book a transfer, can you guys figure out, just tell me who my crew is going to be. Mm-hmm. I just want to know who's coming to get me. And then the the request for the transfer came through and I got a call from the chief of Edmonton EMS at the time, Graham McAllister, who was uh, just the most stand-up guy. He called me up and he said, hey, we got a request for a transfer for you. Do you have a crew that you want to transfer you? We're segregated, very military style. We're like a, a big service, but then there's four shifts, A, B, C, and D shift. We used to be called by numbers and we'd call ourselves platoons. So A shift, B shift, C shift, D shift, and then one, two, three, and four platoon. And I said, okay, what platoon is working? He's like, well, it's old one platoon. And I was like, okay. I said, well, my neighbor is also one of my really good friends. I said, if, if, uh, if Jackie Kennedy's working, I want to see her face. And if I can't see Jackie Kennedy, I want to see Peter Halushak. And they were two of my best friends on that shift. And surprise, surprise, coming into my my room that morning was both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pulled some strings and made it so that two people that I was extremely comfortable talking to about the incident who had come and visited me during my stay at the hospital. And Jackie, she was the head of the peer support team for EMS at the time. And she had looked after Alex quite a bit while I was stuck in the hospital. And she had organized you know, like a food drive for me and things like that, making a food drive for Alex, making sure that there was always somebody to take out Bear, that somebody was there to look after Quinn when we had her, that kind of stuff, that she was there to help me in the process of going over there. And there was no no hard questions. It was all, you know, are you doing okay? Are they feeding you okay? Do you want us to stop at the drive through at Tim Hortons? Do you need a coffee? Things that they wouldn't normally give to a regular patient. I kind of felt like I was getting treated like a VIP. Perks. Yeah. And when I arrived at the Glen Rose, they made sure that I was taken care of and tucked in before they even left. So it felt really safe to be with them just simply because like I've been in the back of the ambulance every day of every shift that I worked for, you know, 21 years. And here I am in the back of the ambulance for the first time as a patient that I can remember. And it was just surreal. But uh, I was surrounded by good people. Wow. Oh, man, you're just like taking me on this emotional roller coaster right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) 
that was not my intention. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, when everybody tells their story, I mean, it's it's a big adventure for each person, right? And you're really good at telling your story and all of these details. I mean, it evokes a lot of emotion in me. So what was it like at the Glenrose and what did people tell you about that program and what were your expectations? I was so thrown off by the, the program at the Glenrose because I don't think that some of the nurses in subacute actually understood what the program was going to look like when I got over there. Because like one of the girls that I had gotten to know fairly well, she had said, you know, you're going to go over to Glenrose. Don't worry about it. They're going to teach you how to walk again. You'll be there as long as it takes to learn how to walk. I thought, okay, cool. And then nobody ever really corrected that. So it was like in my brain that I was going to go over to the Glenrose and I was going to work my butt off. And if I was there for, you know, until Christmas, I was going to learn how to walk again. And that was totally within my wheelhouse. As long as I had the an intestinal fortitude and the brain power to get me there, that's where I was going to be. And then I got there and I met my nursing team. And within about 15 minutes, that was my expectations were completely shattered and rewrote. So I was basically told, you know, no, you're here for six to eight weeks maximum. You are here to basically learn how to live life in a wheelchair and you are going to learn how to be the best that you can be in your wheelchair and learn how to adapt the world around you from that and we'll see how far we can get you before we discharge you home and then we might bring you back as an outpatient to work on some stuff if you're unable to get proficient with you know your daily life and i thought well this is different <laughs> but uh Let's see how long it takes me to get out of here then. Like, <laughs> let's go. Mm -hmm. Let's be the best I can be. So that's what I worked at. So how did that affect your mental state? So you go in there expecting one thing and then you kind of get thrown a curveball. What was that shift like for you? <laughs> I, I think I was all the first responder stuff that you get taught, right? Like you, for years, I had gone to calls where it's like, oh, little old lady who's sick and you show up and she's literally trying to die on you. Or, you know, baby is choking to death and you get there and the baby's like gurgly and happy as soon as you get there that you, you never take what you're given at face value because until you hear it yourself or you can see it and you can touch it, is it not really what's going on? So, you know, my hopes were fairly high and then I get told this other thing. And, you know, at first I was, I felt really kind of almost broken. And then it was, no, you know what? I'm going to take what I can get here and I'm going to apply it as best I can to what the situation is. And I'm not going to take anything for granted. If I can find a way around this, if I can find how to do this, I'm going to learn how to do it as best I can. There's a line in the movie from like Dazed and Confused. It's like, I was the best I could be while I was in this place. That's what I was going to do. I was going to be the best I could be while I was in this place. Mm -hmm. So would you say your ability to adapt then was largely in part due to your career choice? I think so. I honestly think so. I also think it has to do with the amount of support I had between Alex, between my mother and father-in-law, mm -hmm. basically bending over backwards every day and bringing me, you know, extra food or making sure that, it, you know, I had a charger for my iPad or my mother-in-law downloading a game on her iPad so that I had someone to, to contact with outside of 
the hospital when Alex would be at work or couldn't be there. I always had an interaction with someone outside of my care care staff. And then, you know, there was had something to do with, with my job because my job, I, I scared my psychologist at the at the Glen Rose. We had uh, we had two sessions total. It spoke to our resiliency as and my ability to compartmentalize, which is both a blessing and a curse when it comes from a first responder, is that I was able to take whatever information I was given, put it in its box and go, okay, that's that's going to go on the shelf and I'll work with it kind of thing. And it's not going to affect any of the other stuff around me at the time. And then when I'm ready, I'll take it out. I'll unpack the box. I'll look at it again. I'll deal with it. And then we might have to, you know, fix some stuff or throw some stuff out and then repack that box every time I, I need to to use it. So it was more fuel for the fire to just get as good as I could at wheelies, at transfers, at whatever they wanted to teach me. I was going to sponge it, absorb it, and do it as best I could. You've always had the best attitude. You really have. I think that's why you've gotten this far. And, you know, I mean, even that doctor saying, you know, that you were the one who was always laughing. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask, uh, how long were you off work then? I've never gone back to work. I was on my third day off. I was supposed to go back on shift two days after my accident. I was put on sick leave because I had hardly ever called in sick. I was put on sick leave for almost a month. And then they transitioned me to short-term disability. And then they transitioned me to long-term disability. And since then, we have parted ways, myself and Alberta Health Services, as I was declared by the insurance company, so by Canada Life, the the big overarching long-term disability agent for Alberta Health Services, that I was ineligible to return to work just due to my restrictions from my physicians and the potential for return to my previous capacity is considered zero because I'll never be a, a road paramedic ever again. So they gave me what was called a, uh, the long and short of it is I was terminated. It was called a non-culpable termination, which basically means that I was unable to meet the requirements set forth my job description and AHS was unable to find me something comparable within the restrictions placed on me by my physicians and my current physical aptitude. So I'm basically off on disability now until I get picked up by Canadian Pension Plan or something changes where I'm capable of returning to a position that will keep me from getting hurt further or keep me from, you know, any of the other stuff. So it's just a it's a game, <laughs> I guess. When was it that you found out about Ryu? I was at Glenrose. This wonderful lady named Bean came in. She put on a, a lifestyles talk and it struck a chord with me. I recognized her right away from one of my many transfers to uh, the cardiac care units. And she looked very vaguely familiar. And the only thing that went through my brain about how I recognized her was that hair color is not normally seen on someone. Where have I seen that before? And I was like, I know where I know her from. And it just struck me that I had, had known you from somewhere before yeah. and that it was strange that I hadn't seen you in so long. And now that I'm seeing you while well, I'm in a wheelchair and you're in a wheelchair, yeah. wow, 
this is weird. And I think it made me open up a little bit more, open up my brain a little bit more and listen to what you were saying, because I was in a, in a place where all I wanted to do was teach me what I'm doing so I can get the heck out of here because I didn't want to deal with all the fluff and everything else. I just wanted to get back to my old life as close as I could without anything else. And, and sitting there during that lifestyles and, and listening to you talk about everything that you had gone through and listening to how you were in the process of attempting to change how people looked at uh, anyone with a disability, regardless of their previous background or their current situation, that there was so much more to do and that you had this wonderful rehab facility called Ryu and it was based on all your previous experiences. It was like, oh, here's someone who has walked through all the fire that I'm potentially going to walk through and I need to learn from her experience. I don't want to be doing this blind. And here you were telling me that, you know, you had done it blind and now you had seen some things and here was the other option. So maybe try it out. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, that's kind of what happened. So Chuck, how long ago were you injured? When was your injury? I don't think we've actually said. July 26, 2017. Okay. So just almost four years ago then. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's four years this summer. Cool. So then how long after your discharge did you start for you? It was almost a year. You guys had just moved into the West End uh, location because you guys were still at the location across from... The stadium. Yeah, from the stadium. And at the time, I couldn't get the bus to go there. Uh, the Strathcona Mobility bus okay. wouldn't go to Ryu. And I was super upset. I'd written letters. I'd talked to council members. I'd talked to anybody I could talk to that, that would listen because at the time I wasn't able to drive yet. I was still going through a bunch of things where car transfers were not the easiest thing in the world for me. So the people that could drive me, I didn't want to burden with, you know, constant, hey, I need a ride, hey, I need a ride kind of thing. Alex was trying to transition back into work full time as well. Yeah. So it was funny though that the Strathcona County Mobility Bus would go to the Glenrose, but wouldn't stop at Ryu. Yeah. So I had talked with my discharge physician at the Glenrose, mm -hmm. and Dr. Lindstrom was like, Well, let's keep bringing you back for as much physiotherapy as we can. And she put me into outpatients on a like a repetition basis just to keep bringing me back and trying to get me stronger and, and a little bit healthier. And during that process, I ended up in the the exo-study and got to walk around in the exoskeleton for cool. uh, a month. And the, after that was all said and done, you guys had moved to the West End. And about four months later, I got the ability to drive. So it became, hello, Ryu. Goodbye, outpatients. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Is there anything that stands out about your first day at Ryu? So the initial assessment. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was both overwhelming, and, but extremely comfortable. Like up until that point, I think every time I'd had a new experience with the world of rehab or the world of disability, it was always very overwhelming, but it was always like that uncomfortable, overwhelming first day at Ryu, it was really super comfortable. It was, you know, everybody explained, I think it was Annabelle that did my initial assessment with Alex and they, and Annabelle was like brand new. I think she was still in training. 
And it was, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to ask you to do. You know, if you can't do it, you know, we're all we're going to ask you to do is try. And then I remember reading the, the board on the way in all the, all the unwritten rules at Ryu and your shoulders aren't your friends. Remember to squeeze your butt. And I remember getting there and thinking, okay, this is it. This is going to be so cool. And I'd brought in Alex and her dad with me because they'd been on this journey with me from the start. And as much as I wanted my mother-in-law there with me, she didn't want to come because she always, she always liked hearing about it because then she didn't have to see if I struggled or anything. Cause she, she was always my biggest fan. So I remember getting there and doing everything and I just felt like a million bucks afterwards. I felt like I had a, a plan. I felt like that plan wasn't set in stone, but that plan was pretty firm. And regardless of, you know, the outcome, the outcome was dependent on, on me and what I was willing to do and what I was willing to accept and what we were willing to do together. And it felt like it was a team, not just that it was all on me. Like, granted, I'm, I'm the only person in the world that's going to be able to, you know, find that connection between my brain and my butt. But uh, they were going to be there to help me and guide me along the way the whole time. And that's what I got out of it. That first day was like, wow, I have a teammate. I have somebody who's willing to help me. Not just, you know, here, here's, a, here's a YouTube video. Figure it out for yourself. It was, uh, no, we're going to become a YouTube video. So it was cool. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> and that's what we strive for. So I'm glad that that was portrayed through to you. <laughs> it was. It was really good. Okay, so you then started, how soon did you notice changes? And what were the big changes that kind of stuck out to you as you started this journey with us? Well, probably within the first week, I noticed some changes because I was tired all the time. I'd never realized how hard it was to make that connection, whether it was, you know, brain exercises or whether it was actually, you know, getting on the floor and trying to do core work, you know, doing wall sits. Never in my life did I think a wall sit was going to drain me for two days. It was so amazing to feel like I was actually doing something that was actually making my body better. I didn't really start noticing some like really super crazy changes for like maybe about a month, month and a half. I started to recognize that, you know, I could bend over and pick something up from my wheelchair and actually sit myself back up again. I didn't need to grab onto stuff. I didn't need to for months, I'd been adapting the environment around me to basically help myself do things that, you know, I, I felt like I was inadequate at. And here I was after, you know, just a few weeks of working on, you know, strengthening my lats or strengthening, you know, my shoulders to the point where it was like, oh, wow, I can actually pick that up. I don't actually have to bend over and grab my push rail and pull myself all the way up. I can actually just pick it up with my arm. So big changes didn't start coming for months, but the little changes, the confidence, the ability to do certain little things happened almost right away. Awesome. And then, so how did that impact you? Like, how did you, I mean, you said, you know, you were able to pick things up off the ground and stuff, but how did the confidence change you? Oh, it, it just drove me to want more. I want more change. It didn't matter how fast it was coming. I just wanted more. It's like an addiction almost. I just want more. It doesn't matter if, if it was, you know, I can all of a sudden bench press the Volkswagen. I, I could care less. It's just that <laughs> there's more. Every time there's a little change, whether it be, you know, 
I can, that spasm is different. Why is that spasm different? Oh, that spasm means something now. It's not just a spasm. I think it was my third session. I was working with Alex and I got Clonus for the first time. And I didn't know what it meant. I could never had it before. And Alex is like, well, this is the explanation behind what it comes from and what it means. And that was my first little progress was I went from having monster, painful tetany spasms to having some clonus instead. And it was like, okay, so this is progress. Okay, so progress is little and progress might not be, I go from I can't feel anything to I can stand up and, you know, do the Dougie. I'm fine, right? Like, I'm, I'm okay. It's just little pieces and little pieces make a big puzzle, so. For sure, and that's the game of neuro-recovery, right? It gets taken away instant, but to bring it back is a very long slow process but the important thing is that it does work it does things do come back it just takes a long time and there's no rhyme or reason to what comes back to when <laughs> nope <laughs> yeah I, I think that was one of the biggest kickers was is that when everybody found out that you're first injured or that you have a spinal cord injury everybody wants to help by giving you I don't know whether it's inspiring stories or they think there are stories that it will inspire you to do better or that, you know, it's not as bad as you think. Like I remember a friend of mine sent me an article. I think it was in Justin Subacute because I'd just been given my iPad. And he sent me this article about this dude from BC who'd been, you know, hiking and he had a, a boulder fall on his back and it crushed his back. And within a year, he was back walking with canes, but he was back walking and he had had paralysis and this and that and everything else. And here I was thinking like, okay, this is cool. But as I've progressed through these past four years, I've started to learn to ask the right questions instead of just reading the article for the entertainment value that it is. What type of paralysis? What level was their paralysis? Were they a complete? Were they a partial? Right? Like those things that you never really think to ask is uh, when you're going through the initial injury. And mm -hmm. I thought I knew a lot about spinal cord injury just from my profession, but I realized how little we are actually taught. And it's, it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> so there is like those little dermatomes that we get taught in school of, in, in physiology and anatomy that there is actually like some, some good science behind this. But then you start to realize that not every spinal cord injury is the same. Yeah. And in fact, they're all different, right? So, I mean, as much as we want to compare ourselves to each other, your journey is really uncomparable to anybody else because it's your own unique journey. So, I mean, that's where it becomes hard because nobody else has gone through it. You're going through this journey and you're paving the way. Yep. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. One of the first, I, I believe it was a pizza night at, that uh, Skits was putting on for us at uh, the Glenrose. I met Vicky for the first time and Vicky told me about her story and you know, Vicky was still in a wheelchair at the time. And she said, you know, I went from being able to move a thumb to being able to push myself in a wheelchair. And now Vicky's able to ambulate. She's able to walk. Like that is the coolest thing in the world. And one of the first things I learned was stop comparing yourself to other people. Compare yourself to yourself. And don't always compare yourself to your old self. Compare yourself to the person who woke up in, in the hospital, right? Like, life can only get better from there. That's that great attitude. Okay, so based on all of your experiences, as you have so many, what are the gaps that you see in the system and what would you like to see changed? Like, 
you know, in the systems that you've been involved in um, at like, you know, for other people who are coming through with spinal cord injuries? The gaps in the system, like th- th- there's a few. I think the gap of knowing what was going to happen from acute to subacute to rehab to ongoing neuro rehab was more fluid. I wish that everybody kind of was aware of what the next step was, what it entailed, how long it could be, and everything else. I also think that the education about what's going to change could almost happen like almost immediately once you wake up. I didn't understand catheters. I didn't understand bowel routine. I didn't understand, you know, things like sexual function. I didn't understand, you know, how different things were going to be. And it was like, every time you discover something new, it's like a reset or it's a, that's another thing. And it's like, and, and at first it was like, oh, don't worry. You're going to learn about that at the next step. And then you get to the next step and they're like, oh, no, no, you don't learn about that until like you get to the Glen Rose or whatever. It's like, really? Like, can we just, can we just get to it? Like, can, can, can we just like rip the bandaid off and just give me all the information so that I can start reading? Cause once I got given my iPad, it was like everything I could do to stay off of Google and go to some of the actual like websites I knew were, were good. Like the, the, the Christopher Reeve foundation websites and things like that and start to find information about what was going to happen or what I could expect to have happen because there's a very limited amount of people who know enough about that spinal cord injury, whatever it happens to be, where you're going to end up kind of thing. So, and it's better to learn from people who've been there before, I think, or who have worked with specifically for spinal cord injury because they have a better understanding of what you're going through maybe. And, you know, maybe they'll understand your emotional state a little bit better mm-hmm. than, you no, know, you're just angry. Oh, you're not angry. You're, you're kind of dealing with everything all at once here. So I think that where I came from, where we used to use a lot of peer support for mental health and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it's almost like you could get given a buddy <laughs> early on and, and kind of help you out down the road. Like the, the community that's come out of Ryu is fantastic for that. Like, I don't know how many times I've talked to Steve or, you know, I've, I've seen something that somebody else has asked about, whether it be, you know, Eric or you or, or someone else. And, and then someone else has an experience that can kind of lead you in a different direction. And it's kind of nice to have, but when you first get diagnosed with that spinal cord injury, it's very lonely. Yeah, I agree. And even though you're talking to your healthcare professionals, and even though these are people who have worked with spinal cord injuries for a long time, they still don't understand, right? And it's not like like you won't until you are a person with a spinal cord injury. Do you have any advice that you would give to somebody who is newly injured or advice that you would give to yourself now, knowing what you know back then? Yeah, be patient. Be patient with yourself more than anything in the world. It's not going to come back tomorrow. It's not going to come back when you want it to. It's going to come back when you least expect it. But be patient, be persistent, and be honest with yourself. Don't, you know, like I know the first thing I said when I woke up was, I'm going to walk again. I didn't even know what my diagnosis was. I didn't know what my outcome was going to be. I didn't know anything. And yeah, I'm sure, you know, some of the rehab nurses had all heard that goal being everybody's like main goal is, yeah, I'm going to walk again. But be honest with yourself when you realize that maybe that isn't going to happen right away. What's your next goal? 
what's your closest goal? What's your closer goal? And don't be hard on yourself if you don't reach it right away. Start to learn from your mistakes, right? Like, I think the first time that I got, I was able to get it out of the quote unquote fishnet and transfer myself. I had never felt more independent in my entire life. The fact that I didn't need to be rolled over and rolled into a net and picked up and put down on something else so that I could get out of bed or, hey, guys, I have to go to the bathroom. Can you guys get me into the bathroom and then have to wait half an hour before you can get to the bathroom? But not understanding that that sensation that maybe you have to go to the bathroom is going to be with you forever and ever. You just have to learn how to read it. It's different and it gives you something to learn from. So every little like step forward was a big deal and a desire to create another step. Like that first transfer was just phenomenal. And it was like the first time I ever stood up. Like, Annabelle, go ahead, stand up. Yeah, right. No, go ahead. Trust me, you can do this. You're going to stand up. <laughs> All right. I'll see you when you pick me up off the floor. Holy crap, I'm standing. Right? Like, you just, wow. Like, I cried. Yeah. Yeah, it's a powerful moment anytime somebody stands up for the first time and sees themselves standing. It's a very surreal, emotional moment. Yeah. What would you say to the paramedical services? Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Like the people who were there, you know, I'll, I'll never forget them because they, first and foremost, they were my friends before this happened. They're closer than friends now. They're closer than some of my family is. The amount of stuff that they did for me, for Alex, for my, the other parts of the family, mm-hmm. like they were just surreal. I've seen it before. Like we've had... We've had members with that have had, you know, deaths in the family. We've had we had a member die from suicide very publicly in the back of an ambulance. And it always seems to be these whenever we have setbacks in our service, it's never a small setback. It's always huge. So so we always seem to continue to regardless of how busy it is and how few ambulances are on the road and how many hours of overtime we're getting and how beat up we're getting. That they all we all seem to lean on each other, and it was really cool to 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 feel looked after. And you know, those guys did a blood drive so that I could you know make it through surgery. And then you know they made food for Alex so that she could come and visit me in the hospital, so I could have somebody there with me all the time. And my first visit back to my platoon when I got out of the hospital was the staff Christmas party. Mm-hmm. The memory stays with me constantly. That, you know, I knew where my, my peers were. I knew that it was Christmas time. It was the busiest time of year. These guys were getting overworked and underpaid and just beat up. I'd heard from my old partner. My partner and I worked together for almost a decade. So he's my brother in every sense of the word. He'd tell me how, how busy they were and how much they were just getting just accosted in the world of EMS. Like, hurry up and wait. You know, go on these big, crazy, heavy calls and then have to wait in an an emergency department for hours with a patient who needs to be seen. That was when the system was really badly falling apart, very long pre-COVID. And they presented me with a check for $9,000 so I could pay for a new wheelchair. Because the way that our insurance was set up was that I had to pay for my wheelchair in full before I could get reimbursed for it. And, you know, ADL wasn't going to order my wheelchair until I had proof of payment. So it was that whole circular 
holy crap of I really need this thing to to live, but mm-hmm. I need to come up with some money because I was getting a D class chair, mm-hmm. and they passed the boot around and they passed the bucket around and they dug down into their pockets and they they did a, a paramedic GoFundMe kind of thing and they presented my platoon gave me a check for nine thousand dollars so I could buy a new wheelchair and. I joke that I should have a star of life permanently engraved on the back of this wheelchair because of just, they own it as much as I do because they've always been there for me. You know, I've been almost four years off the road and I've been invited back multiple times. My friend, Jen, who did the the blood drive for me, she's one of the head instructors at paramedicine at Nate mm-hmm. and she teaches uh, a course in uh, special populations. And she brings me back every year to talk to them about, you know, people with disabilities and that, you know, people with disabilities are still people too, because, Hey, I used to be one of you. So just remember that. And it goes a long way to be invited back to volunteer and talk to the, the new fish as I call them. And some of the new fish are, are not just new. They've been around for a long time and they get to see it from a different perspective because we do compartmentalize things, but it felt awesome. It felt so awesome and so supportive from these people to, to never forget me and always be pushing to see how I am. You know, every other day I seem to get a message from someone because I don't do social media as much anymore, but mm-hmm. I get messages from people who uh, were my partners or who were in my platoons and my old boss is now retired and I get a text message from him once in a while asking how I'm doing or if I need my ramp shovel and stuff like that. So <laughs> it's nice to know that people still remember me. <laughs> yeah. That's really nice. Yeah, you in general have such a heartwarming story. It's just like the way the community just came behind you and supporting you in your journey. So that's amazing. Yeah, and and that was part of the reason why I think I started on Instagram was like Facebook got to be a little bit too political for me. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of done with this. And then a friend of mine was like, you should try Instagram. I'm like, you should see Instagram. It's like if you see this the picture and you and you you might want to read this story kind of thing. And it was like I started to post updates only for the people that cared, right? Like the people that I was friends with on Facebook or friends with on Instagram that because I'd gone through a huge purge of, I don't know you, delete, right? Kind of thing shortly after my accident, because there were so many people who were asking me, you know, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. And it wasn't out of making sure that I was okay. It was just people like to have information to have information, right? So I, I do post my updates and it's cool that when I see myself in reuse story, I, I repost it real quick because my wife's cousin, who is, I call him my brother-in-law, who's in Ontario, who I don't get to talk to as often, gets to see kind of live updates of what I'm doing because Mark was my big reason for getting as good as I am now. He's been one of my biggest cheerleaders. Mark was involved in his own accident years ago he was a soldier in afghanistan and he was hit by an rpg and was a threat of losing his arm and he he told his his doctor you can take my arm over my cold dead body and now the guy is built like the hulk and he has full use of his arm so mark he was my reason for i could look at mark and say there's somebody who said i'm not going to roll over and i'm going to be a sponge and look at where mark is now and every day I go into Ryu, I either get a message from Mark or I get a, a text afterwards saying, how was it, bro? Right? I think so it's, yeah, I'm working, I'm working hard. 
That's awesome. Leads us into our last question. So what are your goals and where do you see yourself in the next five years? Uh, my goals are just to just get better, just continue getting better at what I'm doing now. And if whatever comes back as it comes back, if we can make it better, then we'll make it better. There was this, uh, this trainer that I was doing online workouts with during the COVID stuff that said that she could see me either standing to pee or standing to have a shower. You know, that's a pretty good goal. I'd like to be able to have, you know, some less time sitting in this chair. As much as it is the vehicle for my freedom, it, it does have its limits. And, you know, standing would be nice. And in five years down the road, if, if I'm still in the same place, I just want to be better. But just be better at everything. Have a Still have a good attitude, but be better for Quinn and be better for Alex. And, you know, just keep moving forward. I don't want to stop. I don't want to plateau and I don't want to stagnate. I just want to keep moving forward. That's awesome. I think you're anything but stagnant right now, just so you know. I have a very good support and training staff at Ryu that have done, that won't let me stagnate, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, just to give people a little bit of a snapshot picture of where you've come from to where you are, like your core is so much stronger. You've got activation in your legs now, like doing your, we call like the wheelchair squats, like pushing your with your legs against the wheelchair. Like that's pretty amazing stuff. For somebody who is technically a complete injury. I'm blessed. I'm blessed by everybody I'm, I'm, I'm around. Well, you've accomplished some great things. And this story was absolutely amazing. I, I mean, like I said before, you took us on a roller coaster of emotions. And I have such a deep level of respect for you. And I'm just excited that you're, you know, continuing on your journey. You've got this amazing attitude, which is going to just push you even further. You are a bright light, Chuck, to a lot of people. So thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for letting me share my story, guys. Yeah, it was incredible. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.